0: in our Bibles. We're going to be looking at the book of First Kings. Uh, just a reminder, if you're wondering how to navigate there in the Bible, it's in the Old Testament. So you open up actually to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and you go Genesis, Exodus, Exodus Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, And then you arrive at 1 Kings. So we're at 1 Kings chapter 17. And we're continuing along in this story of Elijah. Now, here's something we need to know about God. God is always at work. He's the master builder. He's the master finisher. And and he has a very specific purpose or work that he's doing in your life. I know a lot of you have asked this question before. You've asked, What is God's will for my life? Anyone here asked that one before? Now, let me just say this. I know that when you're asking that question, it's very specific. You're looking for a very specific answer to a specific situation. But I want you to understand that ultimately, I can give you the answer to that question. And the ultimate answer to that question really doesn't have much to do with your next job or the place where you're moving, or how many kids you should have, or who you're going to marry. No, the ultimate answer to that question is that God's will for your life, made plain and clear in the Bible, is that he wants you to look like his son Jesus. And he knows just how to go about that work, and he has the patience to complete that work. Now, maybe next time you're praying prayers of thanksgiving and and you, you come across a point where you say, oh boy, I really don't know what I should be thankful for. What should I pray to God and tell him I'm thankful for? I'll add one to your list. You can thank God that the pastor of this church, me, is not God, okay? You go right there. Because God is so good at his work. He knows just how to conduct the process. And I'm going to confess to you for a moment, I sometimes mess up the processes of work. Uh, Recently, my wife Katie, she decided that our house trim needed to change from an ugly blue to a clean white. And so she says, you know, it's time for you to contribute a little bit around here, get outside and make it happen. Now, normally when you're painting a house... There is a process. You first must scrape the paint, then you sand down the wood, you apply the primer, and then, and only then, do you put on that fresh coat of paint. But, I mean, come on. Who needs a process? And I look in my garage and I realize, I don't got all the tools that I need to do this, but I do have a really useful tool that can get it done. This, my friends, is called an angle grinder, and it's also called, when you use something like this for a job that it's not intended for, jury rigging it. And that's just what I did. Now this thing is really, really good at grinding down metal. But not so good at, you know, keeping wood looking its best, nor flesh upon the fingers, and all of that kind of stuff. So. After a while of watching me go about my work processes, Katie decided that I should probably exercise my skills, my competencies elsewhere, probably in the area of networking. So we called in a a young guy, and and he came, and he did a great job with the trim around the house. But God is not like that, and thank God that he knows just what he's doing. He never jury-rigs it. Jesus said this in the Gospel of John. He says, my father is always at his work. He never stops. He's continually keeping at it. He has a project in mind. He wants to seek and save lost sinners, conform them to the image of his son. He wants to give them real purpose and meaning by incorporating them in his overall mission for the world. And he's going to see this job all the way through until they reach glory. You see, as I look at the story of Elijah, that's what I see this morning. God at work. But not just in Elijah. No, God's at work in two ways. He's at work in Elijah, and he's also at work in a widow. Let's read the story, and we'll see this. 1 Kings 17, verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks, and he called to her and said, bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour and a jar and a little oil and a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Now let's recall where we've been in the story thus far. Last week I shared this thought with you. I said, God has a better idea for how you should spend this time of your life. Remember, he had a very specific purpose for that time that Elijah was in Kareth. He was working out his odd provisions in his life solitude, ravens, inactivity, uncertainty. And we saw that while God goes about these things, he does them for a reason. He's bringing about a change in our world. As we see in this text, the change is in verse 10. He tells him to arise and go to Zarephath. And again, notice that there's this one-way dialogue between God and Elijah. He doesn't speak back to God and say, God, why should I do this? I kind of like this place, Kareth, that you have me at right now. Just make the brook start flowing again and I'll be all set. No, verse 10. It just tells us he arose and he went. Now, once again, I want to highlight that word obedience. Because Elijah in this story, he trusts God. He doesn't always understand what God is doing, what God is about, but he's trusting him. And it's important to pause on this point because obedience is what God is looking for from you. And if you want God's work in your life, if you want him to do incredible things in and through you, the only way to go about it is to do what he says. In fact, there is an easier way and there is a harder way. And the easier way is to do what he says. Now, notice I didn't say easy way. Because God's never called you to an easy life, but He has called you to the best sort of life possible—a life filled with purpose. Now, the harder way we see the harder way come about in the life of Jonah the prophet. You see, when you resist God, no longer can he pull out that fine sandpaper and sand you down and, and work on you that way. No, when you resist God, it means there are some sharp edges of resistance in your character. And what does he need to do? Well, he needs to pull out the angle grinder. And so he does in Jonah. Jonah. He tells Jonah, go to Nineveh. And what does Jonah do? Jonah gets on a boat and he heads off to Tarshish. So God pulls out the angle grinder. He sends Jonah into the belly of a whale. After that, Jonah goes. Now, Elijah must have recognized the seeming absurdity of what God was asking him to do. Let me just make a couple of observations of these new marching orders. First, he must leave the protection of hiding to walk through populated spaces to get to where he's going. He's going to be walking for four days. The travel is some 100 miles. All along the way, there are wanted posters with Elijah's face. Everyone knows that Ahab's looking for this prophet, and God says, you know, you're going to journey, and you're going to get to where I'm telling you to go. And so He goes. Now, secondly is the location, Zarephath, which is in Sidon. Now, if you're looking at the geography here, God has just called Elijah to go into Baal's country. In fact, he is now just eight miles south of, you know, uh, Jezebel's hometown. In fact, you know, Jezebel's dad is still living there, Ethbal? Eight miles away from there, and God says, go. I'm going to provide for you there with a widow. Now, that's the third absurdity, a widow. See, it's hard enough to live in this time as a family with a husband, but just imagine living in a time like this as a widow. It's considered nearly impossible. So great. Look at what God's calling you to do from solitude and ravens and inactivity, uncertainty to Zarephath, which comes from the Hebrew word, which means to melt, to smelt. If you put it in the noun form, it means it's a crucible. He has a deeper work, a deeper work for Elijah. Now, if you walk with the Lord long enough, you're going to discover that his tests and his trials Often come back to back. They tend to come in twos and threes, and yes, sometimes even fours. When they come, you don't typically leave Karis and then go off to a luxury vacation or even get back to normalcy. No, one thing leads into another. You lose a job which then results in financial struggle and maybe marital issues. And maybe even simultaneously, when all of that's happening, one of your family members is going through a personal crisis. Now, you could ask yourself in the midst of all of that, why, God? Like, why in the world are you taking me out of this place called Kareth and then sending me into more trials? Well, the answer is this. God works through a process. As a master worker, God does not move us from stripping us down then to applying the fresh coat of paint. No, Kareth is the place where God was stripping Elijah down. Now, Zarephath will be the place where he pulls out the fine sandpaper and he applies the primer. And get this, each one of those steps is necessary. You get any of those steps out of whack, and the job's done wrong. Well, God never does the job wrong. The next steps of God's work in this story appear even stranger. After the four-day walk, Elijah arrives at Zarephath. He's probably starving. He's probably thirsty. And he's unaware of which widow that God had told him to find protection with. It's not like in the story, it tells us exactly who he's supposed to meet. So he comes into this town and he starts testing the first woman he meets. Elijah says to her, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And upon seeing her responsiveness to that, then he follows up and bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. Now here's the thing, when God calls you and he says, I'm going to provide for you, you would think that there would be some kind of warm reception, like this person is just waiting to meet you. Come into my house. I have all these cheeses and breads and wines. We're going to enjoy a dinner together. But no, instead he discovers that this particular woman was needy, negative, non-committal. She never said she was going to help him she didn't even know that he was a prophet. Listen to her response. As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug, and now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. When I first uh, entered into ministry, I I remember I was suffering with a disease called ministry idealism. You see, I had it in my mind and in my heart that if I was to go into ministry, that everyone that I came across, knowing that I'm called to minister to them, would be just as excited about me and, and the ministry God's calling me to as I am about them. Let me just say this. There's been plenty of warm receptivity. I I am so grateful to God for that. But you come to find out as you're working with people that not everyone is as excited about you as you are about them. Let Let me help you into the mindset of people for just a minute the people that you're going to go minister to as God calls you deeper into being missional, as you engage in missional may. Let me help you to understand the mindset of this widow as she's coming across Elijah for the first time. You know what they're thinking? It goes something like this. Who in the world is this person? Who are they? I don't know them. What does he mean to ask for that last bit of bread that I have? Doesn't he have a heart? Doesn't he understand my situation? Doesn't he know that my son whom I love is about to starve? You see what's happening here? She can't think past her felt needs. She's experiencing this need, and this is true of many people. Now listen, as we talk about this vision that we're called to inspire, train, and mobilize transformative leaders, we've got to be mindful of what is happening in this text. You know, God has called us to have that win team, what's important now? And it's a community engagement team. And we believe that God's calling our church to be more deeply involved in the community. And so we're trying to find insights that will help us have impactful engagement with the community so that we can have influence in the community. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Getting involved in the community doesn't just happen magically. We don't open up programs at our church and say, hey guys, we have all these programs here and these Bible things. Just come on in and enjoy it. That's putting our lenses on the community. No, expect this. Just because God's calling us into the community, it doesn't mean that people will be open, receptive, ready, most important of all, trusting. That's because it takes time to build bridges. People don't always recognize that their deepest need in this world and in eternity is Jesus. Sometimes they can't think past their empty stomach or or broken heart, or whatever other issue they are dealing with at the time. So here's the application. If we're gonna get involved in the community, we're gonna need two character qualities. The first is patience, and the second is persistence. And that's what Elijah models to us. Look at verse 13. He says to this widow, Do not fear. Now, do you see what he's doing? He's meeting this woman where she is. He assures her that she can trust God. And this is what I love about the work of God, because in this chapter, God is at work in two ways in the story. Uh, We often, preaching tends to often focus on one way of the work of God, and that's the work of God in Elijah. That's what God's doing in the prophet, the minister, the one who's called to serve. But there's always a two-way work of God. He's working in the prophet so that he can also work through the prophet in this widow's life. Notice again that Elijah was sent So even though this widow is not immediately receptive, we can clearly see that God also has her interests in mind as he gives Elijah these instructions. He's not called to be a burden upon her. No, he's called to be a representative. And as God provides for his representative, he's also going to be providing for this widow. I appreciate this point that Leon Wood makes. He says that Christians should never look for God's purposes and provisions solely in what is beneficial for themselves. So often we read passages like Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good, but then we equate that good with only our benefit in mind. But God has the interests of many when he's doing his work. In fact, I want to encourage you to start reading your Bible differently. Stop reading your Bible through the lens of me, myself, and I. It's not all about you. You see, God's generous purposes in this world are bigger than me. They're bigger than my comfort. They're bigger than my financial security. They're bigger than my bucket list. They're they're bigger even than my marriage and my family. You see, God works in you so that you will in turn be used by him to work in others. That's why we're going to continue to come back to missional May year after year. We're going to come back because we need to be reminded that following Jesus is more than just getting into my personal studies and, and me coming to know God personally and my personal prayer life and me coming to church and getting something out of the sermon. It's so much bigger than that. That's why our mission statement over here has us moving from worship to transformation onto mission. Now, if I only get stuck in worship and transformation, I become a stagnant Christian. But if you're going to become a mature Christian, the kind of Christian that God's moving forward in this world, you have to get into mission. You have to be used by him for his greater purposes Think of Abraham's blessing in Genesis 12:2. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. What about Joseph's words to his brothers after they had offended him in Genesis 50:20? He says, "As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that not just I might prosper, that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And I believe that those were the very words that Paul had in mind as he was penning Romans 8.28. Or what about the prophet Jonah again? Remember, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He had no compassion for this city. He had more pity upon a plant than he did on these people. In Jonah 4.10, the Lord says, "'You pity the plant for which you did not labor.'" nor did you make it grow, which came into being in night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons, or in the Hebrew it's nefesh, souls, who do not know their right hand from their left hand, and also much cattle Do you see the missionary heart of God throughout the Old Testament? It's all over the place. He wants our churches to be spaces where widows of Zarephath feel comfortable coming. And sitting amongst us and realizing that they too can have access to the blessings of God. And the only way to let them know that is to tell it to them. And we have to ask another question of this widow. Why her? Because when you think of all the people that are experiencing this famine at this time, there must be millions in need. And yet, Elijah goes to her. Why? When Luke 4, 24 and 26, Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but in truth I tell you there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Now, if you understand the context of this story, Jesus is ministering in Nazareth. This is his hometown. In fact, he's received in his hometown as a hometown hero. He's been out performing miracles in Capernaum. The people are all excited. Oh, Jesus is going to return, and he's from here. Surely he's going to do greater works here than he did at Capernaum. But you know, Jesus, there's a funny thing about him. He has this innate ability to look into the human heart and understand when your allegiance to him is only superficial. He sees that in Nazareth. You see, these people... They wanted the miracles of God, but they didn't want the actual radical work of God to enter into their world and change them. They were comfortable with God at arm's length, but they didn't want God up close and personal. Now, here's the thing. If you keep God at arm's length, the only thing you get from God is judgment and also the forfeiture of blessings. That's all you get. Why? Because God at arm's length means you don't want God at all. It's either up close and personal or it's nothing. Now Jesus mentions the widow of Zarephath because she received the blessing that the Israelites had forfeited. They knew God. They had decided in their hearts that they were going to love Baal in addition to God. But here's this widow who was raised worshiping Baal, and what does she say to Elijah? She calls Elijah's God living. Did you see that in verse 12? The Lord your God lives. Do you know what I see in that statement? I I see the, the beginning of the mustard seed kind of faith that Jesus said that God can work with. She's just like Rahab in the story of Joshua. This woman can see all the signs. Elijah said to Ahab, it's not going to rain upon the land, and she's living with the ramifications. She's living with the drought. So she can see that, that Elijah's God is living, not Baal. Now, do you see how much God values faith? He can even work with fledgling levels of faith and and he's willing to go to extremes to work with the individuals that have that kind of faith, even if just a little mustard seed is present. Now, God can't work with denial and rejection. He just can't. He he can't work when I say, you know, I'm just not really interested in this whole God thing and I I don't want anything to do with it and don't confuse me with the facts my mind is made up. But he is a God who works with us while we are in process. He can work with doubt. Maybe you're in a place where you say, I don't know if I believe in God. I'm open to God. I would like to believe in God because that sounds like a wonderful thing. But I'm just not sure. Well, you see, in this story, that's where the widow's at. She is essentially saying, your God may be alive, but practically speaking, what does it matter if he's alive? I'm still dying from starvation. I'm going to go cook my bread and I'm going to go die. What value does he bring into my life at this moment? And God sent his prophet Elijah to speak the value to her. Look at verse 13. "'Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, "'but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, "'and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. "'For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, "'the jar of flour shall not be spent, "'and the jug of oil shall not be empty "'until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. "'And she went and did as Elijah said, "'and she and he and her household ate for many days.' The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. You see, God can work with doubt, but he's also going to challenge you out of the place of doubt because doubt tends to leave you stuck or frozen there really is no movement in doubt. You're, you're neither moving toward God or away from God. You're just kind of stuck in this spiritual limbo where you're like, I don't know what to do. R.T. Kendall rightly notes this. He says, Faith is sometimes spelled R I S K risk. To experience the extraordinary, To experience any work of God in your life, you must be willing to step out on a limb. And risk is what is required if you're going to put your faith in him. Now, let me just ask you a question. What part of your life doesn't involve risk in some way? I mean, opening yourself up to someone in a relationship takes risk. You're choosing to trust them. Jumping into the car requires risk, right? Because you're trusting that the manufacturers did all of those battery of tests that they said they were going to do upon that vehicle. And you're also trusting that all the components and parts are going to hold up to the standards that you are hoping that they will. It is risky just to leave your house. As we move out of this pandemic, we're going to just have to get comfortable with risk again, right? Risk. Have you ever gone out on a limb? Have you ever left your comfort zone when it came to faith? You know maybe walking on a limb for you just begins with a simple dialogue beginning between you and God. Just opening up the conversation. Let me ask, have you ever prayed? And I'm talking about really prayed. I'm not talking about, you know, you're about to take that test that you hadn't studied for and you go, Jesus, give me a solid right here. Help me to get a B. No, I'm talking about prayer. God, if you're real. God, if you're working in my life. God, if you're there. Reveal yourself to me. And let me tell you something about that prayer. He's not going to rend open the clouds and show his face and say, hey, I was just waiting for you to say that prayer. I'm right here. But he will reveal himself in a way that you can know and understand him and experience him. Have you prayed like that? Have you gone out on a limb? You see, any forward movement with God it requires faith. And faith, by definition, requires trust, especially in those places where we are most fearful. The widow put her trust in Elijah's God. A God she never even really knew. She grew up worshiping Baal and Mott in this pantheon of gods. But through Elijah, she met the one true living God, the God who does not disappoint, the God who promises and says the oil and the flour will come unceasingly, and that God provides just as he said he would. Have you done the same? I hope today you understand that God is at work. He's at work in your life, but he also requires from us to work with him. That's really how this whole faith thing works. We can't say, well, I'm just going to kind of sit back and wait and watch and see how things go. No, God wants our faith to work just like this Phoenician widow's faith. Most of us will never get more sophisticated than her, okay? We know a lot, we might have a lot of head knowledge about God and religion and all that kind of stuff, theology, philosophy. But ultimately, the kind of faith that God's looking for boils down to what she does here. She leans all of the weight of her faith on the mere word of God. Have you leaned your weight of your faith on the mere word of God? Dale Ralph Davis shares... For all the additional light we may have, and let me just say this, you have more light, more access to God than any people in any generation in history. Thousands of Christian books, Bibles at your disposal, Christian materials. But even with all of that, we will still have to step over the edge of life under the brink of eternity With nothing to support us except for some word like, The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. That promise is from Jesus. Jesus says that if you trust him, confess with your mouth that he is Lord, believe in your heart that he raised from the dead, that he died in the cross in your place, you will be saved. Just like that widow, you must go and first make the loaf. To receive. You must first trust Jesus. You can't trust him after you leave this life. You have to trust him in this life and believe that the bread will keep coming. Have you leaned your weight, the weight of your faith, and the mere words of God? Have you placed your faith in Jesus? Well, if you haven't done that, I want to invite you to do it this morning. Can I ask everyone to bow your heads? And once again, while we're closing, I I want to invite you in this moment to give God your undivided attention. Close your eyes. Bow your head. Don't worry about the people around you. Don't worry about the list of activities beyond this point. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me right now to do so. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you're the only Savior and the risen Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I want to come, I want you to come into my life at this moment. As best as I know how, I turn my life over to your care and your control. Amen. Amen. Well, friend, this morning, if you have prayed that prayer, if you've put your faith in Jesus, that's just the beginning. Part of being uh, in a local church is journeying with others in this walk with Jesus. And that's what we're all about. We want to journey with you. So if you want to know what the next steps are, you reach out to me. We'll have a good conversation and get you going. God bless you guys.